Today's show is brought to you by the Human Resource Executive Magazine's HR Technology Conference and Exposition, held October 1st to 4th at the Venetian in Las Vegas. Join me and thousands of your colleagues at the world's largest exhibition of HR technology. Act now using the code HREX and you can receive a $300 discount on your ticket. Thanks. We'll see you there. And by the way, don't miss the Women in Technology segment. And good morning, and welcome to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations. I'm your host, John Sumser, and today we're going to be talking with Christy Whitehead, who is the Chief Talent Economist at Engage Talent. Now, that's that's a lot of mumbo-jumbo for Christy is, is the... Mm, most interesting data scientist in all of HR technology. And so, so she's got a PhD from Clemson and um, spends her time thinking about employment and labor economics, and it's going to be a great conversation. Hi, Christy. Hey, John. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Take some time and introduce yourself, if you would. Sure, yeah. So, you know, as you mentioned, um, I'm the Chief Talent Economist at Engage Talent, and what does that mean? Um, so I lead up our product, our research, and our data science teams. Um, you know, I've been working with Engage for almost four years now, and um, I've been in the HR tech space for almost 10 years. Um, as you mentioned, I have my PhD, and I absolutely love to learn. Um, I would have stayed in school forever if I could, but I found a great balance um, with Engage continuing to do research and learn and also kind of find a way to be um, contribute value. Um, so so that's, that's amazing. Tell me a little bit more about, about the day-to-day. How, do, how does, how does a, a, a talent economist work? Yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's, so spend a lot of time um, just uh, reading and finding new data sources and pulling in that data. So really exploring um, everything that other people are talking about, making sure that we're staying kind of on that cutting edge of um, the way people are thinking about talent, um, the flow of talent, uh, so understanding management science, uh, understanding uh, the way people make decisions, and you know, using everything that we have um, to kind of explore research and then build models um, to really leverage that information in a useful way. So, so, so you've built an extraordinary model at at, at Engage Talent, and, and I had somebody some years back told me told me what it was like to watch you when you were working your hardest, and they said. Um, when she is really doing her best work, she's out in a chair in the courtyard with her eyes closed, getting some sun. Um, <laughs> yes. So, I have so a very. Go ahead. Nope, you. Oh, I was just going to say I have a very active inner inner mind, um, so I, I really love to think about um, problems and really explore um, various solutions. Um, and so it, it's definitely one of my favorite pastimes. <laughs> well, well, it's really interesting because, because the, the, engaged, the engaged talent model, I, I believe I'm not exaggerating when I say there are 40,000 inputs to it. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, so we are, you know, directly or indirectly collecting data from over 40,000 different sources. Um, and that, you know, equates to billions of data points, right? Um, and, and so, yes, we are collecting and aggregating a large amount of data um, about people, about organizations, about jobs, um, and the economy as a whole to really understand the full context um, of the talent market. And, and so, so we didn't really cover this yet, but but why don't you talk a little bit about what engaged talent actually does? That's that's it's a pretty interesting idea, I think. Well, thank you. Yeah. So, um, you know, engaged talent um, is really kind of a total talent intelligence platform. So, we like I've mentioned, kind of we're we're working to understand that flow of talent uh, in and out of organizations. Um, kind of what creates a misalignment between a person and their job and the company that they're working for to really understand why people change jobs, um, how recruiters can better engage that talent that they're inter interested in and really understand um, the, the, the market as a whole, um, track their competitors um, and really help to make better decisions about their talent strategy. Um, you know, our kind of uh, core uh, foundational score um, is what we call our engaged score, um, and that's something that we've built on years of academic research, um, and we kind of identified a lot of different factors that play into the reasons why people change jobs, um, and we've built, been able to build uh, a really robust model that really helps to identify which people are most likely to change jobs at any given time. That's that's um, that's pretty interesting stuff. So so where does it go from there? That's that you've got these forty thousand inputs, billions of data points, and you're trying to make predictions about about individual choice in staying or leaving a job. Um, what's what's the next horizon line? Yeah. So you know, I think um, really being able to kind of understand the how the workforce is changing right it's it's not static we live in a dynamic dynamic world it's always constantly evolving and changing um so thinking about how people work um you know it are people moving to more of a contingent i.e like kind of mobile workforce um how does that impact people's decisions um you know what does the labor force look like in the future and how does that impact the way that we find talent um, and recruit talent and maintain that strategy that's going to keep the business productive and um, moving forward. So, so at the core right now, the big sort of value proposition is that you can predict when somebody is likely to be receptive to a job offer. Does it work? Yeah, so we definitely find that um, if people, if our uh, customers target those people that we think are most likely to change jobs, that they kind of get that 2x to 7x um, improvement in response rates from those candidates. Um, and, and that really can help them not only understand the people, because we do this at the people level, but we also do it, you know, at the company level, at the industry level, and really at the macroeconomic level to understand um, you know, not only who they should target, but also um, how their competitors are doing, which of their competitors should they target for talent, how do they, you know, how does the industry as a whole, how do they compare to the industry, 
um, and really get a full picture um, and really understand that whole context and not just what's going on with an individual person. Fascinating, fascinating. So, so I'm trying to imagine, um, I'm trying to imagine you at you know five or six years old in a sandbox somewhere, deciding <laughs> that you wanted to become a data scientist. Um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think it, it, it might have come from counting grains of sand, but but I, I can't imagine that that's actually the case. Um, so, so, so tell me about how you evolved from. From wherever yeah. you started to to this um, somewhat bizarre fascination with complicated puzzles. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so you know, it's a great question, and you know, the the job title data scientist was not around when I was five years old. <laughs> so it's uh, you know that that job title has only been prevalent for the last ten years or so. Um, so I definitely didn't grow up dreaming of. Uh, being a data scientist, but I always did love math, and I always loved art and being creative, um, and those are two themes that, uh, you know, I, can, I continue to see in my life, um, and I can remember coming out of undergraduate, um, you know, trying to think about how can I use data uh, to make, to help, you know, businesses and people uh, to make decisions and kind of um, create value through through data, and I can remember having these conversations with my dad and him helping me brainstorm different areas like operational research and this and that and the other. Um, and I, um, what I found is that I'd really fallen in love with economics because that's really what economics is about. It gives you all these underlying theories and frameworks for thinking about the way that people and businesses make decisions and, and kind of gives you those tools to analyze those decisions and, and build these models. Um, so I guess it kind of just developed out of the fact that, you know, I love math <laughs> and I love being creative. And I feel like the, the data scientist role is really about, uh, you know, research um, and creative problem solving as much as it is about math and numbers. You know, there, there is a very technical side of it, um, that it that is very technical, but there's also a creative piece where you have to think about, you know, how to measure um, different things that might not be easily measured and how do you, um, you know, model those in a mathematical way. Um, so in, in a lot of ways, it's a very creative process in addition to being very technical. Amazing, amazing. So, so it seems like you like solving puzzles. Tell me about the kinds of puzzles you like to solve, and um, and and the ones that currently have your attention in the job. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think um, I really I love all kinds of puzzles. Everything from literal puzzles to Sudoku puzzles to just thinking about life as a puzzle and and how do you kind of you know make those things happen that you want to happen. So to me, almost everything is a puzzle. Um, and I, I uh, you know, really like challenging and difficult problems. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with those really hard problems because uh, it's usually at that brink of frustration where you're just kind of beating your head against the wall trying to figure out how to solve it, um, that you get this light bulb and you're like, oh, wait, you know, this is what I need to do. This is how I need to solve it. 
Um, and, and there's this huge gratification and satisfaction uh, when you're actually successful and you kind of come to that um, precipice after kind of uh, looking at a problem for a long time and, and exploring different options. There's a huge satisfaction in, in being successful when you're solving a hard problem. Well, I'll tell you what. That's that's what what I do for a living in a, in a very different way. It's not it's not quite so mathematical and technical, but I I do like getting into something that I don't understand and then finding my way out of it. What mm-hmm. what mm-hmm. has your attention now? What what are the what are the things that you're curious about now? Yeah, absolutely. So this is going to sound a little bit kind of idealistic, probably. Um, but I like to think about, like, what if we all lived in a world where we loved to go to work? What if everybody loved to go to work? What would that look like? How awesome would that be? Um, you know, we all have to find a way to make a living um, and provide for ourselves and our families. Our work is just a really big part of, um, of our lives, whether it's inside the home or outside the home. And um, if we love what, I, what we do, it can have a huge impact on our lives. Um, it can also have a huge impact on the businesses that we work for. Uh, we know that people that love their work are more productive and more product, uh, effective in their jobs. Uh, and so not only does it help us as individuals, it helps the businesses and society as a whole because um, we make bigger strides uh, in innovation and change and can really help improve the way society works together. So like I said, this is a very idealistic world, but the problem that I like to think about when I'm trying to uh, kind of think about that highest level problem is how can we best connect the people in the organizations with the jobs um, in a way that they're going to be happy and excited about. Um, it's kind of a lofty goal, <laughs> no doubt. But I figure if Google can strive to organize all of the world's information, um, I can strive to help connect people with work that they love. And so, you know, by what we're trying to do is help identify those people that may not be enamored, right, with a job that they're doing right now and might be up for considering a new role and helping them uh, by hopefully connecting them with something that might be new and interesting and challenging for them. So. <laughs> okay. So, so, so let's, let's drift back a little bit to engage talent. You've got this, yeah. this model of uh, 40,000 flows of data that are inputs um, and you predict um, the likelihood that person X will be interested in moving on to the next job. That's, that's help me understand in kind of a simple way, what that model looks like. Um, Because that's, that's just, just organizing the pile of data uh, strikes me as worse than having to organize a closet. Um, <laughs> you, you know, yes. so, so, so how the question is, how do you organize that? Give me some sense of, of how you make sense out of all of that. And then how do you remember yeah. what's there? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um, so, you know, I think a lot of people definitely think that uh, data science is very uh, glamorous, job. I've definitely heard it be referenced as one of the sexiest jobs of the century, um, but it is really a lot of grunt work. Um, so 80% of what data scientists do is all about, you know, organizing, understanding, cleaning, um, and, you know, dissecting the data uh, before you can figure out how to leverage it and build a model on it. Um, and in fact, because so much of what we do is gathering 
data from disparate data sources. Um, a lot of the work that we do is um, actually entity resolution, which is taking kind of data points and mapping them together and understanding that they're referring to the same entity, um, whether that's, you know, a person or a company um, and, and, and mapping people to companies and understanding that this person that is a data scientist is a data scientist with engaged talent and um, kind of understanding what the landscape of engaged talent looks like. And so we're pulling together all of this um, kind of disparate data. And, you know, one of the great tools um, that we leverage is kind of academic research. Um, and there's uh, a, a really provocative theory that was built in the 90s um, that we've been able to kind of validate with some of our research and has been well validated by the academic um, community as well that really helps us break down the problem of when and why people change jobs in a way that um, you can kind of process it um, at a lower level. Um, it's called the unfolding model of voluntary turnover. And um, it, it relies on the fact um, that people don't just, you know, become dissatisfied in their job and quit. Actually, people will stay in a job unhappy for a long time. Um, it's this model has shown that over 50% of voluntary turnover is is related to a shock or an event that happens. So something happens that triggers that decision. Um, and being unhappy in your job can make it more likely that you'll respond to that shock. It might be something like. Um, your company gets sued, or you get a new boss, or you reach a work anniversary. Um, it could be something as simple as that. But something happens that kind of makes you reevaluate your situation and kind of make that decision to change jobs. But by leveraging kind of this underlying um, academic model, it really helps to kind of organize the thought process um, around why people ch change jobs and break the data down um, in a way that we can use to kind of understand um, the different types of things that impact people's decisions to change jobs. Um, so kind of leveraging that framework uh, really helps to kind of, in some ways, simplify um, the problem into something that's consumable, digestible, and, uh, and workable. Um, and that's really the whole point of a model in general, is to kind of simplify away some of the complexity of a problem and turn it into something that you can um, analyze and think about. Interesting. Um, so, so one of the things I've noticed over the years is that how an organization defines what work actually is, is a highly variable thing. And so in, in some organizations, um, uh, big consulting firms come to mind. When you walk into the, when you walk into the office, what you see are a lot of meeting rooms because in those organizations, partly because they're billable by the hour, meetings are actually sort of the work. And and people who work in those places are really good at going to meetings. And then you go over to a deeply technical company and you see almost no meeting rooms because in those environments, meetings are the opposite of work. Um, and mm -hmm. so, so, I think that that what work is, what employees do inside of an organization and how they earn the currency that the company gives them for the time they spend there is somewhat unique to the organization. And so when I, when I think about why people move and where they go, 
it, it seems to me that a lot of the time the the issue is I think of work one way and my organization thinks of work another way, and so there's this inherent friction in the relationship. Do you have ways yeah. of seeing that kind of thing in your data? Yeah, and I think uh, to some extent, um, you know, there, there's a lot of um, interesting things that you can learn about, uh, you know, an organization based on the types of people that they tend to hire, right? What, are, what types of backgrounds do those people have? What other companies have they worked for in the past? How long did they stay at those companies? Um, you know, how a given person, you know, what companies did they work for in the past? How long did they stay at those companies and those jobs? What types of jobs did they have? Um, what types of skills do they have? Um, so all of those things can give you a little bit of insight about how um, an organization works and, and the types of people that are likely to stay at that company versus the types of people that are likely to leave that organization. One of the things that, that I've been sort of soapboxing the last year or so is the idea that recruiting has a 50% failure rate and that mm -hmm. then that that is a dismal embarrassing truth about how recruiting works um yeah does when you look at your data do you see that in the data yeah that's an interesting question uh, i don't know that we've really framed the question that way i i think um what i can say is that you know one of the things that we look at is you know how long people tend to stay um in various jobs organizations etc and, and there's definitely an overwhelming trend that over the between the first, I would say, like six months, and this is particularly for lower level jobs as you get into higher level jobs, it changes a little bit. But um, for those more like non-management, um, lower level jobs, um, what you'll see is that between about three to six months and two years, um, you see kind of like that peak in the likelihood um, that they're going to change jobs. So the, the people that... Um, you know, as far as how long people on average stay in a job, the first two years um, are kind of the most pivotal. Um, and after that, you'll see that if they stay, they tend to stay for quite a while. Um, and, and it's almost to me, um, I, and I, I do this all the time, is I compare uh, job hunting to dating. Um, <laughs> So the 50% success rate with a, a job and the 50% uh, divorce rate, maybe there's some parallel there. But um, I think mm -hmm. that there's a lot of um, unknowns, right, when you're going into an organization about um, that, you know, what they tell you in the interview and then what it's like when you actually get there and vice versa. You know, people will tell you what you want to hear in an interview and then they come into work and their behavior is, is a little bit different. And so um, I do think that, you know, to some extent, those first um, couple of years are really make or break when you're, you're kind of evaluating, is this a long-term relationship or is this a fling? Um, so uh, I definitely see those trends, um, and uh, it is an interesting problem to try to solve. So, so I want to ask you about ethics, but, but I, want to, I want to start by, uh, as, I, as I listen to you talk, I started to imagine that you probably can already make some gross estimates of a person's likelihood of success in a job based on their background. Um, yeah. Uh, right. And so, so the first ethics question is, 
if you can make an estimate of success, it won't be a hundred percent guarantee. It'll be some probabilistic formulation of the likelihood that they will succeed. Absolutely. How do you how do you deliver that kind of information without tarnishing people with a label? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, and it's, we do try to measure on a scale, right? Um, so we definitely want to have, we create these algorithms to be useful. And this is one thing that um, I think about all the time is the data can be a very useful tool, uh, but data is best leveraged when it's paired with our own judgment. Um, so, you know, we kind of have this kind of red, yellow, green scale that we use to kind of portray how likely we think somebody is. But we, you know, we always say we think this person is most likely to change jobs. Um, we would never say this people, this person is going to change jobs. We can't do that. There's too many factors that come into play in those decisions, right? So, um, we we need to think for ourselves and take in this information and say, okay, Engage says that this person is most likely to change jobs. What else do I know about them? I use my own judgment uh, and kind of balance that between thinking for ourselves and using the information that we have. Um, there's a famous quote from George Box that I really love. Um, he's a renowned statistician. Uh, he says that all models are wrong, but some are useful. Um, models are just that, they're models. They aren't perfect representations of the world and they're never gonna be 100% um, right all of the time. So, uh, but given that, well-built mo well models can and should be used to kind of augment that information that we have for, and we know for ourselves. So, so that puts a lot of faith in the end user of the output of the model. Um, is is that is that faith justified? I mean, it seems to me that that if I get something that says eighty percent likelihood, I go okay, I'm taking that. Um, <laughs> it, instead of instead of I think what you'd suggest is that I ought to be more thoughtful than that. Sure. Yeah. And I you know I think yeah, I definitely understand uh, where you're coming from, and I think that you know a lot of people um, probably do rely a bit too much on kind of those predictions. Um, but, you know, I think for the most part, um, we are kind of trying to help guide you and say, you know, we, we do think that our recruiters um, and the people that leverage the information that we provide, um, you know, they, they know, they have confidence in themselves. And for the most part, they um, will absolutely take what we say and leverage it with what they know as well. Um, but yes, they, you know, you can become over, overly reliant on um, on these models, and that is a risk. So I think we could spend a long time on that issue. Are there other ethical issues that, that grab your attention in your work? Yeah, so one of the things that we are um, you know, thinking about on a regular basis is, is bias in the workplace and you know, bias in um, hiring and how can we help to mitigate that bias and, and reduce any bias that might be in our algorithms and help our users to kind of track and understand um, the bias if there is any uh, monitor that and reduce it uh, by tracking the types of people that they're looking at in our tool um, and also helping them to kind of monitor um, over time what that looks like. Oh, that's interesting. So you give them feedback about the kinds of people they're looking at. 
That's yeah. So we have, that, we have. I, I don't think I've heard about about anybody doing that before. So so you can you can sort of measure the implicit bias in the sourcing function itself. Yeah. So we offer reporting uh, that our users can use to kind of understand, um, you know, for a given role, for a given job function, for a given company, um, what the breakdown there looks like. And um, leveraging our tool, you can kind of compare that to um, the broader picture. Oh, that's uh, that's uh, well, this this is a light bulb for me. This is this is uh, this is an actually great thing that you that you just disclosed. We'll have to talk about that some more after the show. But we're running out of time, um, and so I want I want to be sure that that you get to tell the people who are listening to this what you them to know. So what should they take away from our conversation? Yeah, that, uh, you know, there's a lot of data and information out there in the world um, that can help us to, to, to make better decisions. And um, I think it's valuable for all of us to um, use that information in a responsible way and help us to, you know, be more efficient and effective. And um, yeah. So cool. use data and use it responsibly. That would be my biggest takeaway. Okay. And reintroduce yourself, please. Tell people tell people how to bombard you with email. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, I'm Christy Whitehead, uh, the Chief Talent Economist at uh, Engage Talent. And um, you can definitely reach out to me at uh, christy.whitehead. It's C-H-R-I-S-T-Y, um, whitehead, at engagetalent.com. Thanks, Christy. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. It was a great conversation, and um, I enjoyed myself immensely. And thanks, thanks everybody, for listening well. in. Okay. Talk to you again soon. We'll do this again sooner rather than later, Christy. Bye-bye now. And You've been listening to HR Examiner's Executive Conversations, and we've been talking with Christy Whitehead, who is the Chief Talent Economist at Engage Talent. Thanks for joining in. See you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you.